first sermon on the new podium. Man, I'm going to figure out how to get my bearings. All right. Uh, good morning. It's good to be with you guys this, this morning. I've almost said this evening. Hey, it's, uh, it's Christmas time. Go to the next slide. Again. <laughs> uh, meme credit goes to Alex. He can't be with us this morning. He made this for me. But it, it's Christmas time. Again. No matter what happens all year, no matter how long this year felt, no matter how difficult the times were, no matter how long the days were, no matter if you had a cruel summer, Christmas came. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah. Hannah got that reference. Thank you, Hannah. Uh, Christmas comes. You can't stop it. And I love that. No matter what, you can't stop it. It will always come no matter what. And it's a wonderful, wonderful reminder this morning. And so we are going to do something a little bit different this morning. Uh, I get to tell you a story, long story, a historical story. I get to take us through the, what is called the intertestamental period of the Bible. All right? It's the, it takes up uh, about half a page in your Bibles. This little blank section right here between the Old Testament and the New Testament accounts for over 400 years of history. And this is all we got, this little white space here. And yet, so much happens during this period. So much happens in the run-up to Jesus' birth. Protestant churches refer to this time period as the silent years, believe it or not. The silent years. Why do they do that? Well, Malachi being the last book of the Old Testament, the last prophet, is the last prophet of God. There are no, no, no new prophets from the time of Malachi until John the Baptist for over 400 years. Kind of interesting. No new revelations from God. Nothing. And yet, though we refer to it as the silent years, a lot happens. A ton happens. And there are actually a lot of books written during this period um, we, in our Bibles, in our Protestant Bibles, we do not uh, put them in our Bibles, but if you've heard of the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha, 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 gosh, such a hard word to say, Pseudepigrapha, um, a lot of those books and a lot of those things written during that time period are placed in those. The reason that we do not put those in our Bible, well, there's a lot of reasons for that, um, but main reasons are they probably were not as well known um, to the people of that time. So everybody, all the Jews in that time would have known Isaiah. They probably would have memorized a lot of the book of Isaiah. But they probably would not have known, you know, first and second Maccabees or Solomon's wisdom or Enoch, things like that. They would be less in circulation. Also, their theology can sometimes be inconsistent with the rest of the Old Testament. So decisions were made in the second century AD to say these are the books we will include in our Bibles. It's kind of fascinating history, too much into the weeds of it. But those books have a lot of uh, help. They really help us with the history of this time period that I'm going to talk about here in a second. Um, but they have value. And they tell us a lot of the theology and the belief systems of the Jews at that time. So think about Dante's Divine Comedy, all right? We would not say that's biblical, or we wouldn't put that in our Bible, right? And yet we would say very valuable. It also is very valuable to tell us 
some of the theology of what they believed about the Bible in the time period in which it was written in 1300 AD. So medieval theology, one of the big staples, fire and brimstone, baby. Turn and burn, right? Dante's Inferno, turn or burn, right? So we can learn a lot from those types of uh, books. But what we're going to do is we're going to go through this history. And uh, I'm going to tell you the story of Israel, the story of the Jews. Uh, leading up to the birth of Christ. And I think it's really valuable, and I think we can really relate um, on a lot of different levels, and I hope to point those things out. So I don't have much on your outlines because I really want you just to sit back and listen and enjoy this wonderful story that's uh, God's story and how he works through history. So let's back things up to 587 B.C. The year is 587 B.C. And what happens in that very important year? Babylon comes in. The, the country of Babylon comes in, conquers Israel, destroys their temple, destroys the temple of God that Solomon built, and exiles many, many, many Israelites to the uh, country of Babylon. If you want to show that map, you can show that map just to give you some reference. This is what happens. Takes them all the way to Babylonia. This happens in 587 B.C. This is such an important event in the history of Israel. Constantly referred back to. Constantly a staple, a pillar in their history. What's so important about this exile and so uh, theological in a sense is that it wasn't like Babylon just came in and, and wrecked them it's really viewed as God's judgment on Israel. Israel did not obey their side of the covenant. They didn't keep the law of Moses. And God said in Deuteronomy, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. And their punishment fits their crime, all right? So look at it this way. God promised them land. said, I will give you this land. I will give it to you. We all know this. But if you don't obey me, I will take you out of this land. You no longer get this land. Make sense? God promised to dwell with them. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell with my people. They disobey, and what happens? The temple of God is destroyed. Kind of symbolizing God is not dwelling with them now. In that way. Not like he left, but in that way. To them. Another thing. God promised you would be the head and not the tail. Wonderful. Deuteronomy. You will be the head and not the tail. And your enemies will flee before you and you will rule over them like nobody's business. And what happens? Babylon now rules over them. Babylon's the head. They, Israelites, are the tail. The punishment fits the crime. God takes away, he kind of doesn't go back on his promises but he uh, morphs them, or he punishes those promises that he made. That's a better way of saying it. This is interesting. This is fascinating. Well, what happens, uh, as slightly, not very long after the exile in 587 B.C., good old Persia, the same Persia uh, that fought the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae, right? The hot gates, the known as 300. Yeah, that Persia. Persia comes in. And busts up Babylon, all right? They take over Babylon, and what they do is they send the Jews back to Jerusalem. They go back to your country. They even say, go rebuild your temple. 
Go rebuild your temple. Go worship your God. They have no problem with that. So they do that. Israelites go back. Zerubbabel, known for rebuilding the temple of God. Nehemiah rebuilds the wall around Jerusalem. These are great, great moments. But check this out. God does not refill the new temple. Have you ever noticed that? So if you go back to Exodus chapter 40, when Moses builds the tabernacle, the very end of Exodus, God fills the temple with his glory. His Shekinah glory is what it's called. And it's this wonderful, wonderful scene of God dwelling with his people. Solomon builds the temple in 1 Chronicles chapter 7, and we know this, and then in 1 Chronicles chapter 7, again, a very similar scene of fire and cloud and smoke. God fills the temple. But we don't get an account like that now with what is now deemed as Second Temple Judaism, the Second Temple that is built. We don't get that. We don't get that. Worse, now I don't think this is worse, but to add on to it, Israel is not in charge of their land. They don't own their land. Persia owns them. They are still the tail and not the head. This happened well over a hundred years. And I love what Jason was saying. Man, have you guys felt like, man, God, you're not filling your promises. You're not fulfilling your promises. Israel is, is so ingrained in their identity as the people of God. Their God dwells with them. Their God has promised things to them. And they have built their identity as a nation on these promises from God and they have seen it firsthand. And it has passed down from generation to generation. And now for over a hundred years, they're asking, where are you, God? Where are you, God? Man, I love it. I think it's really captured the, 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 the mood in Israel, in the end of Malachi. And if you have your Bibles, I don't have it written up here. Well, I, actually, I do have it written up there. I love this. I think you can relate with this. Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. It is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? What do we gain? You haven't filled up the temple. Persia rules over us. We don't have the land. We don't have the dwelling. We're the tails. What do we gain by this, God? And worse, but now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Have you ever felt like that? What do I gain by living this way? Still deal with anxiety, depression. Golly, our culture is full of evildoers succeeding. God doesn't care. God's not here. God's not doing anything. You ever felt that way? Boy, these Israelites did. This goes on for a while. Persia 
rules for a long time, well into the 300s BC. But then all of a sudden, this really notable character in ancient history pops onto the scene. Anybody want to take a guess who that was? Probably the most famous military leader of ancient history. Alexander the Great. I think I heard it. I think I heard it. Alexander the Great comes onto the scene. He's leading the Greeks. They're kicking butt and taking names. He's weeping because there's no more kingdoms to conquer, right? He takes over Israel. And what is known, what goes forward for the next, again, hundred or so years is what's called the Hellenization of the Jews. It is Greek culture making its way into Jewish culture. At this point in time, it is more common for a Jew to know Greek than Hebrew. Hebrew was their native language. It would be more common for them to know Greek than Hebrew. This is a time period in which the Septuagint is written. Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. It makes sense. That's their native language. But then the Septuagint comes out in Greek. Because why? Because the majority of the Jews now will know Greek than Hebrew. The Jews would be just, it is not a far cry to say the Jews would know Homer's Iliad and Odyssey as well as they would know the Exodus, the Red Sea, the wandering in the desert. They are becoming very, very Greek. Parents, have you ever wondered, how am I going to raise my kids in this culture? In a culture that does not serve the one true God. Boy, the Greeks didn't serve Yahweh. They served a whole bunch of gods. Have you ever felt it struggle, the struggle, the anxiety? How can I raise my child to know God in this kind of culture? Everybody. Have you ever struggled with how can I live out my faith in a culture that does not serve the one true God and does not care about that as much as I care about that? Boy, these Jews can. They can relate. They really, really can. Let's continue on. After Alexander the Great dies, his kingdom is split between his generals as you can imagine, the generals eventually start fighting each other because they want more of a portion than they probably got. And this happens for a long, long time. And we're going to get to another really notable figure. Let's fast forward to the year 167 B.C. And you have this military leader called Antiochus Epiphanes IV. This is a really important figure. Why? Antiochus Epiphanes IV took Tyrant 101 class when he grew up, right? And in Tyrant 101 class, in order to really uh, uh, subjugate a, a, a people group, you tried to destroy those markers that, that dis make them distinct from your culture. So the Jews had their own culture. You need to break down those marks, those distinctions, those characteristics, those symbols, in order so that they will assimilate to your culture. That's a great way to control them and to keep them in line. So he thought, came up with a brilliant idea, you know how I should do this? I should go into their temple, their temple of God, and I'm going to desecrate it. I'm going to sacrifice a pig on their altar, and then I'm going to rededicate their temple to Zeus. And that's what he did. 
The reason why he sacrificed a pig is because the, Jew, the law of Moses, Jews did not eat pork. Pigs were unclean. He sacrificed an unclean animal on the altar of God in their temple and rededicated their temple to Zeus. And he thought it would work. <sighs> Dumb. Bad move. Bad move. I love, uh, a little bit, not off topic, I love uh, the Netflix movie uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. Came out, I think, this last year. I really love the scene where you have the Germans negotiating the peace treaty, uh, I think, with the French military leaders. And I love the German negotiator says this wonderful thing. He gets the terms of peace, and obviously they're going to be brutal on the Germans for what they did. And he said, this is too harsh. You are going to light a fire in our people, and they're going to resent you for this. This is too harsh. The French didn't care. They wanted it. We all know history. The German's economy plummeted. It was really brutal. It was a perfect environment for a psychotic leader to come in, i.e. Hitler, to lead them out of it. Not quite the same way, but in a sense, it was too harsh, and it was too on the nose, and the people, the Jewish people, were angry. So what you have is this great family, Mattathias and his five sons, his famous, most famous son, Judas Maccabeus. Not his last name. Maccabeus means hammer. He was known as Judas the Hammer. And they lead the revolt. You know, kind of a fun thing with dates. Antiochus Epiphanes IV desecrates the temple on what day? December 25th. 167 B.C. Three years later, to the day, December 25th, 164, Judas Maccabeus, they win the revolt. They conquer Antiochus Epiphanes IV. They win back their land. And he rededicates the temple to God on December 25th, 164 B.C. It's a great moment in their history. Think of uh, Star Wars Episode One. Phantom Menace at the very end, when they're all celebrating on Naboo. We won. We won. We got our planet back. You know, Judas and Maccabeus and the Jews are saying, we, we won. We, we victory. We are, we're back in our land. We own our land. We have our temple rededicated to the Lord. Woo! We've done it. We're back, baby. And yet, again, once again, we know this from hindsight. The false summons. God did not, once again, did not refill the temple when Judas rededicated it to the Lord. And, and though the Jews did have independence and they owned their own land and they ruled over it, their, their political uh, history is very, very wrought with, with, with civil war and, and political infighting and, and families vying for power, whether it was in the temple or whether it was in the royal family. And, and so much goes on. And so it's really not this golden age like David or Solomon in Israel. It's, it's a lot of messy, messy things going on. And that happens for a hundred years. And then, in 63 B.C., oh, you know, just a general by the name of Pompey of the Roman Legion, Comes in, kicks butt, takes names. Comes in, sub conquers Jerusalem. Famously, 
kind of a cool fun fact, famously walks into the Holy of Holies to gloat, to say, my God beat your God, goes into the Holy of Holies in the temple, looks around, comes out, and famously says, you atheists. Kind of a cool one. Why did he call them atheists? Because in the Holy of Holies, there is no statue. There was no icon. There was no graven image of their God. Why? That's the second commandment of his Ten Commandments. No graven images. No idols. And because everybody else had that, every other religion had that, they didn't. He called them atheists. And that's kind of a fun, you read historical documents from the Roman time period, and the Christians and Jews are often referred to as atheists. And I love that. I don't know why. I'm just like, so every, call me an atheist. Whoa, I am an atheist. Heck yeah. Maybe I shouldn't yell that too loudly outside of this. <laughs> but I love it, though. Man. 400 years. 400 years of this. 400 years of, of the people of God saying, God, where are you? Where are you? Why are you not being faithful to your promises? Even in Deuteronomy, God says, hey, when you're going to be, you're going to be faithless, but I will still be faithful to this covenant I have made to you. That's Deuteronomy. And 400 years of the Jews saying, God, where is your faithfulness? God, we're the people of God. And you're the God who, who created this whole entire earth, who who who." raises up kings and, and conquers kings at a snap of your finger. Where are you? What are you doing? And have you felt that way? God, what are you doing? What are you up to? Why is, is injustice just running rampant? Why are the wicked prospering? Why are the righteous not? What is going on? Where are, where are you? Why are you silent? Israel had a history of God dwelling with them, speaking them to them so intimately. And yet for 400 years, no new prophets, no prophet of God saying, thus saith the Lord to them. God's silent. What's going on? Man, how do we keep living? I mean, golly, I think that's... Some of the reason why I think, gosh, Christianity is so true is that how in the world could, they, could, their, could their faith survive such a long period of, of getting nothing, not nothing from God, but, but all of the promises in which their faith was built on were not being fulfilled? How in the world did they stick it out for 450 years? How in the world could they do it? I'll tell you what. Zechariah 9, 9 through 17, I think, captures this. And there are so many passages like this, especially these post-exilic, post-exile prophets like Zechariah and Malachi. Listen to the word of the Lord this morning. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your son Zion against your son's Greece and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound a trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. And the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save His people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in His land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. Hope. So many of these passages and these prophets pointing forward to a day, the day of the Lord, when God will defeat their enemies, when God will dwell among them once again, when God will work in their hearts to obey their Torah, to obey the law, to obey God's commands. He will do it. And He will defeat their enemies. And He will draw them back to the land. And He will remain faithful to His covenant, to His promises. A day will come this silent period, a lot of the Messiah prophecies come about during this time. We don't have a ton of them in our Bible, but we have some. But a lot. They're holding on to this hope that one day the, this Messiah, this Savior, will come and help us. And they held on to it. So many of them held on to it for so long. So many of them held on to it and never saw it. So many of them lived their whole entire lives and died and never ever saw the fulfillment of God's promises. And then, and then, for hundreds of years, shepherds watched their flocks at night. And there was a silent night. And nothing out of the ordinary happened. But then, one day, one night, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And he said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news and great joy to all people. For on this night, a Savior has been born, the Messiah, in the town of Bethlehem. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. He is the Wonderful Counselor. He is the Everlasting Father. He is the Mighty God has been born to you this night. And all your promises are fulfilled in Him. And all your hopes have been gathered together and will be redeemed in Him. And I will dwell with you through Him and show you how much I care for you and how much I care for you and love you through Him. And I will show you how much I love you by giving you beloved son. 
Ladies and gentlemen, times can be difficult with the Lord, undoubtedly. You may have to wait. Yes. Yes. And you may not always see the fulfillment of his promises, undoubtedly. God is doing things that are just bigger than us. Doesn't mean he does not care about you. I love N.T. Wright. God has a plot, but every writer knows how you fill a plot is with subplots. And if you do not pay attention to the subplots, then you mess up your overarching plot. And he takes that to mean your life matters because you are a subplot to the great plot of history. He cares. He cares about you. He cares about what's going on in your life. He sees it. He is with you. And Christmas is a reminder of that. It is a reminder, a tremendous reminder that though we have to wait for long periods of time, though we have to wait through the scorching heat of the summer, though we have to wait to the very end of the year, it always comes. It always comes. And we have the benefit of being on this side of Christmas, so we are without excuse for when we feel that God is being not faithful to His promises. And where are you, God? And why aren't you speaking? Jesus is the exclamation mark it is the, the, the full sentence in all caps that, what are you talking about? I'm faithful, aren't I? I'm spoken loudly to you. I have shown you tremendously all my character and all the fullness of who I am in my son Jesus. What are you talking about? Hold on to that. Hold on to that. Hold on to that. Main hopeful, ladies and gentlemen, that's your one point. That's it. Keep it simple, stupid. Remain hopeful. Man, there's time, long times, long periods in our lives where we have to wait. Remain hopeful. All oh, the Jews waited. Golly, pick between my life and their life. You're taking me ten times out of nine. All right? <laughs> 100%. Remain hopeful. Man, when God feels silent, remain hopeful. He'll speak. He'll make himself known. He already has. I sometimes like to think, I was on jury duty one time, and uh, what you're given when you have to go deliberate to actually make the call is this packet that has like essentially all the rules, all your guidance in making your decision. So if you have to rule on this charge, it has to fit all these guidelines. And what they told us is if you have a question, uh, we'll have to get everybody back in the courtroom in order to answer it. And so we had this question on this one charge. And so it took about an hour, but they had to go get the guy on trial. They got to get the lawyers, the judge. They had to get everybody back into the law room. We got back in the law room. We asked our question. And you know what the judge said? Refer back to your package that we gave you. That's all he could say. Refer, you have everything you need in that packet. Refer back to it. And you have everything you need. And that was it. It took an hour to get everybody back, and it took two seconds for him to say, you have everything you need. Go back into the room and deliberate. Man, guys, I know we want God to speak. I know we have all these very intimate, personal circumstances going on. But I definitely, God can do a lot of things. I'm not putting them in a box. But I know, I'm sure a number of times God's like, you got everything you need in the Bible, buddy. You got it. 
And that's why I always encourage you to read your Bibles and keep in the Word. Keep going in the Word. There is so much more to it, so much more depth you can go with it. There are so many things as you meditate that will be brought out. You can never exhaust it. You can never, ever exhaust it. And I think so many times we just need to get back in God's Word and just listen to it and sit on it because you have everything you need. We have everything we need in God's Word and the Holy Spirit that resides in you. We have it all. So remain hopeful. It'll make sense. You're going to get there. Remain hopeful in God. Keep trusting Him. Keep persevering. Keep remaining hopeful. Christmas is a reminder of hope filled. And we all know hope deferred makes the heart sick. Right? We know that. Oh my gosh, we know that. And if there's one thing I learned from my one season of Ted Lasso that I read, watched, it's the hope that kills you, right? The famous episode. And yeah, living with hope is painful. Uh, I get it, 100%. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's painful to live with hope and to not see it, your expectation met. And what's great, God's providence, I, I, you guys know I love Artemanilius. Artemanilius has these Sunday firesides. And it was all about, hey, that's just being human. You guys want to feel good all the time? You're not. You're human. You're not a robot. So you're going to have bad days. And you're going to feel not good. And you're going to feel guilt. And you're going to feel depressed. And you're going to feel anxious. That's just being human. And guess what? Being human, you're going to feel hope deferred. And your heart's going to be sick for a time. And if we're constantly trying to run to different things to try to control our life so much that we never want to feel those emotions, I think you're going to do more damage than good. You're just human. Accept it. Accept it. You're going to have bad days. You're going to have bad thoughts. You're going to have bad thought processes. You're going to feel sick to your stomach some days. You're going to feel like, you know what, all hope is gone and I got nothing to live for. You're going to feel that. That is just being human. It's just, can you remain hopeful? And can you hold on to the feet of Jesus, as Jason said? And can you remain with Him while you're sick to your stomach? Can you do that? I encourage you this morning to do it. Because those feelings will not last forever. Though tears wet your bed at night, joy comes in the morning. Right? Remain hopeful this morning. Be strengthened this morning. Trust the Lord this morning. Man, let's have a merry, merry Christmas. Amen? You stand with me. We'll close.